Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. With the wave of the sexual revolution has come the gender craze. It seems as if the topic of transgenderism is everywhere around us. Joining me in just a moment is Stratina Alfieri. She's a hermit, a therapist, and an addiction specialist, especially specializing in sexual addiction in particular. And we're going to dive into how she's seen a shift in light of the sexual revolution's push toward transgenderism when it comes to working with patients. Also today, a heavy topic, but one that's important. I've been there. Perhaps you have too. How do you navigate a loved one who is suicidal? It's a heavy topic, but it's important. It's one that you never know when will come up. Also diving into goals today, everything from hope in the face of fertility challenges and setting simple and achievable monthly goals for yourself Maybe it's for your family, professionally, personally, in your faith. I'll give you some ideas and share a little bit about how I've been trying to simplify new goals in the new year and work toward things. For example, this month, we need to focus on sleep in our household as it's been challenging with two toddlers. So all of that coming up here today on Trending. You're listening to Trending with Timory. My guest today is Sister Tina Alfieri. She is a hermit and nun, a therapist, an addiction specialist. Sister Tina, welcome back to Trending. Thank you, Timory. It's nice to be here again. Thank you so much for the invitation. I was talking to my sister-in-law earlier today, and she was intrigued thinking about your work as a therapist. And she asked me the question, she said, I really wonder how sister has seen things change since she's been practicing therapy with everything from the sexual revolution, especially with the push in transgenderism, and how you've seen that different in the challenges that your patients face in the counseling room. It is difficult, and there have been some changes. I must admit that most of the changes in the population I'm working with, I'm working with persons 18 and over, so I don't work with uh, adolescents or uh, persons under the age of 18. So 18 and above, uh, that hits a lot of the college-age people who might be questioning uh, their sexual identity and what's going on with them especially if they are away from college, uh, going where they can maybe explore uh, or experiment with that, as often happens when people move away from home for the first time. They feel some freedom uh, to engage in all sorts of activities for the first time. Um, And then I see it also in... Uh, maybe some of the 30 and 40-year-olds who are married, where they have a partner, their spouse, is coming to them saying, you know, I think I'm no longer a woman. I think Mm -hmm. I'm really supposed to be a man. 
and this marriage has been intact for the past 10, 12 years, there are children involved, and it becomes very devastating for all. And then all the way up to um, adults with adult children. Uh, so we're talking about persons maybe in their 60s or 70s who have adult children in their 30s, 40s, or 50s who are not married, the, the child, adult children are not married, and they are now telling their aged parents, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm a different gender and I'm going to begin transitioning. Um, and it's very, very difficult for all involved. And so uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is I deal more with the loved ones, family members, and friends of persons who are transitioning more so than people who are seeking transition themselves. It's interesting. Share with me a little bit about how frequently you're seeing, for example, you mentioned where you have someone you're treating whose spouse has come to them saying that they no longer identify with their biological reality, which they have been in this marriage for years. Do you see this as connected to sexual addiction? How are these stories playing out in the counseling room as you're seeing them from a little distant, but quite intimately with their loved ones being close to them? So uh, it's a very good question. So we have to be careful about not uh, crossing wires, so to speak, between transgenderism and sexual addiction. They do not necessarily correlate one with the other. Uh, the only time that uh, sexual addiction or pornography might become involved is sometimes that might be a gateway Mm -hmm. to being introduced to the whole concept or lifestyle that you can change your gender because there are categories of adult sites out there uh, that that is what they cater to on yes. their websites exclusively. And so some people might think, huh, I never thought about that. Gee, mm -hmm. you know, I was a tomboy as a little girl, May, they might be saying to themselves, and maybe that means that I'm really supposed to have been a man, and here's some websites of a very adult, X-rated nature that kind of say, hey, this is something that is out there and appeals to people, and so I think it's, it's, easy, it's very easy to get misled if one is not strong in their faith, strong in their convictions and the knowledge of what our faith teaches us about the connection between body, mind, and soul, that uh, we are, our gender is the same as our physical appearance. Um, the only time that that is questioned is in the very rare instance uh, of what is called intersex, where someone is actually born with both mm -hmm. male and female sexual organs. That The old term is hermaphrodite. Some people might be more familiar with that term. The newer clinical term is intersex. And mm -hmm. so that is a real sexual dilemma at that point. Um, that is but such a small, small 
small percentage. Category. Yeah. And even mm-hmm. with the intersex, I think it's always important to note that while you might have genitalia that's presenting as ambiguous or maybe a little bit of both, that mm-hmm. there's usually great resolution in looking to the chromosomal knowledge of the person and yes. the rest of the person, not just their sexual organs, to have usually what's usually a proclivity in a particular direction of maleness mm-hmm. or females or literally usually being clarified within the chromosomes. And there's been some ambiguity in the development of those parts, which are sad cases, but as you mm-hmm. mentioned, rare and not to be confused with this gender ideology that's so prevalent today. Sister Tina Alfieri Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. a hermited nun as well as a therapist and an addiction specialist. Now, one thing that has been standing out to me, Sister Tina, is the normalcy today, and I know this is a tough topic to hear, uh, the normalcy Mm -hmm. of men sharing that they're looking at gay pornography, essentially, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how common that is. I don't have the statistic in front of me, but when you were speaking, it reminded me of how common it is for men and how these men say, hey, I'm straight. Mm -hmm. I'm not in that direction, but how normal it is with the way the brain chemicals work that once you start looking at a certain type of pornography, you look for something more different and novel and intense, and a lot of men Mm -hmm. find themselves looking at this content. And it's leading in this culture today that says, question everything. Hey, you do you, or if you're looking in that direction, maybe you should explore your sexuality in another way. Can you speak a little to that? Certainly. And so there are many people, both male and female, who were looking at same-sex pornography. And this can be out of curiosity. Uh, it might be because their spouse or partner is encouraging them, hey, this is what I'm looking at. Do you want to join me in looking at it? Um, not that any of that is correct, okay? <laughs> I want to make that clear. But we do know that these things occur in relationships sometimes. Um, so just because one finds a particular type of pornography interesting or arousing does not mean that you are same-sex attracted, because there can be a lot of um, things going on in the brain uh, with novelty. Uh, Seeing new things sometimes is arousing. It doesn't necessarily mean you are same-sex attracted yourself. So you can be aroused by different things without necessarily meaning your orientation is not what you believe it to be. So the fact that And I have had people, especially in sexual addiction therapy, uh, men uh, who say, you know, I've been uh, looking at male-on-male pornography or even having, uh, attempting and having sexual encounters with other men. And yes, we have to really um, tease out and parse out in therapy is this a real sexual attraction or is it just a novelty? Is it the excitement? Is it the uh, height of arousal, this new type of drug, this new way you have found to act out on your addiction? That is the appeal. And that does take some time and it does take some nuance. It's not anything that we can make quick judgments about. Uh, Therapists don't make quick judgments about, oh, well, you're watching same-sex pornography, then that means you are same-sex attracted or homosexual. 
it's much more complicated than that, especially when we're talking about addiction, because I think as we've discussed before, and you mentioned briefly just a minute ago, the concepts of tolerance and escalation uh, are inherent in addiction. And we know that in addiction, tolerance and escalation drive us to new and novel things in drugs, in alcohol use, um, in uh, pornography. What we choose to view if someone is uh, using pornography, it can get pretty bland after a while, believe it or not, and people want something new and different. And that doesn't necessarily mean if they're watching same-sex pornography that they are homosexual. And something you mentioned earlier that is so key that I think can be confusing for a lot of people when we're talking about the influence of the current culture with regard to the sexual revolution and this push toward transgenderism. We're getting expert uh, perspective on this from Sister Tina Alfieri, a hermit and nun therapist and addiction specialist, is where you mentioned, Sister Tina, uh, arousal, how you can be aroused by certain things that you're not actually interested in, that are not rightly ordered in mm-hmm. the and to kind of have a sense of peace, like, okay, there are certain things that, for lack of better words, might be titillating to someone. And you go, wow, wait, should I explore this? And I remember having a friend who, uh, probably about five or six years after college, started to say, you know, I really decided I needed to explore whether or not I was a lesbian. And I said, wait, what? And she had great Catholic formation, everything. Mm-hmm. Should I just, I really feel like I need to give this a chance and just explore. I have some really great friendships. And because those are good friendships, and maybe I should consider well, I'm not dating anyone. I'm approaching my mid to late 20s at the time. And maybe I need to give this a shot. And I just remember kindly laughing at her and saying, you know, I think you know better. And I get what you're saying. I get this, the influence of the culture. And I get that desire of, hey, why, why me? Why am I not with anyone? Why am I not married? This is what I so deeply desired. And it's not happened. You're not happy. And so you're saying, well, maybe there's something different or quote unquote wrong, or as some people say today, special and unique, you're a unicorn um, Mm. (laughs) that I need to explore. And can I discover an arousal with someone of the same sex? And what's frightening is, yes, you actually can experience an arousal with someone of the same sex or in that needs to not be allowed to be something that says, well, then I am now gay or I am now transgender. Mm -hmm. Can you tease Mm -hmm. out that point where someone says, well, I've decided to explore this. It's intriguing to me. Now, does that make me gay or or whatever you want to say? Yeah, I think this teasing out has to be done with a Catholic therapist. If one is Catholic, I with these issues and if you're wanting to be faithful to what the church teaches and what our faith tells us, what our theology informs us, then I really only feel these things should be dealt with by a Catholic therapist, a Catholic therapist that is adhering to church teaching and to the magisterium totally, not just in name only, but faithfully and totally. So with that being said, um, you know, there's a lot that goes into uh, determining one's uh, main sexual orientation. Uh, and it it's a lot more than who am I sexually attracted to. It's who do I see myself being a life partner with, you know? Mm-hmm. So 
many people might experiment with uh, same-sex relationships. They might also experience with heterosexual, lots of different relationships. But we're all kind of asking that same question, can I see myself with this person for the rest of my life? A long, very long-term commitment. And some things are new and novel and interesting. And you experience and you go, hey, that's great. It was really fun, but not my cup of tea and not for me. Um, thanks be to God, we have uh, reconciliation, the sacrament of uh, reconciliation, where we can go and ask God for forgiveness for those things that we have done outside of his uh, path for us. But it's going to take some time, again, uh, in understanding that uh, not everyone who maybe wants to get married is going to get married. That's mm -hmm. even yes. heterosexual people. Right. There are many people who would love to get married, but they cannot find another willing person to marry them. And it's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of education or finances. There are many things that can inhibit or prevent someone from getting married. And so it's not just um, homosexuals who are not married. There are a lot of heterosexuals who wish to get married, but they're not for one reason or another. And, you know, they are also prohibited from having sexual contact according to our faith. So I think it's important that we understand that uh, chastity is for all single persons, whether they are widowed or single or never married or homosexual and unable to marry within the Catholic faith. So I think we have to be very aware that uh, this idea that everybody else has a partner but me is not true. So true. Yeah. Uh, but we get into that very self-absorbed absorbed mm -hmm. self-focusing because let's admit it, it's painful. And, you know, I do work with faithful Catholic homosexuals who are living chastity by the church's teaching, and this is painful for them. They want a family. They want children, but they also want to please God. And they know that in following God and adhering to church teaching that they're having to give up something else, but it's for their greater good. Mm. And that's and a so heroic choice. It's a heroic, heroic virtue. Yes, Amen. A heroic virtue. And I you would know? just challenge, and I know that it's semantics, but I wouldn't even consider that person a, quote, homosexual person. It's someone who experiences same-sex attraction, but that's not their, their identity because that's an action, right? Like, that's a lifestyle. And we don't call ourselves... We don't call ourselves kleptomaniacs. We don't call ourselves liars, like as our our identification. And and just hearing what you're saying, it reminds me, Sister Tina, of how important it is that we are faithful to the church's teaching. And there's a great need for us as adults and for children and people who are teachers to help with a reorientation to a healthy understanding of maleness and femaleness in a disorienting culture with regard to sexuality 
motherhood, fatherhood, womanhood, what it means to be a man. And so really diving into the beauty of the church's teaching on this is important. And as you mentioned, if maybe you're at a point, you're Catholic, and you're kind of maybe experimenting or trying to search out your sexuality or, hey, I'm single, maybe I should explore whether or not I'm same-sex attracted, or maybe, you know, you're looking, you're straight, but you're looking at gay porn and you're wondering, why is this happening? This is a great time to see a faithful Catholic therapist to guide you and navigate you through those challenges that are very disorienting in our modern culture. Sister Tina, I know you're a huge fan of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. You can find them at catholicpsychotherapy.org to find a therapist or catholictherapist.com. We're including links to those in the episode notes. Sister Tina Alfieri actually works with especially women who have experienced a betrayal trauma from a loved one who's working through a sexual addiction. So you can find them at bloomforcatholicwomen.com. That's bloomforcatholicwomen.com. I'll be right back with Sister Tina diving into the topic of suicide. How do you navigate a loved one who is suicidal? I've been there. Uh, A Dear family member, um, unfortunately, we lost because of suicide, and I'll never forget, not long before, he called a, called me on the phone. I was in college, and you could just tell he needed to be talked down. You know, How do you handle those situations when someone you know and love is at risk? We'll dive into that in just a moment here on Trending. If you have a question for Sister Tina, our toll-free line is 888-914-9149. And it's sponsored by Catholic Order Foresters Life Insurance. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Never forget, uh, a number of years ago when I was in college, a dear family friend who actually lived off and on with my family when I was growing up had lived a troubled time struggled with drug addiction, among other things. And I was in college just doing homework, and one late evening got a phone call from him. And he wasn't in a good place. He was struggling. And I had known there had been some suicide attempts in the past. And I just remember staying on the phone with him. You know, you don't know what to do when you have a loved one who is suicidal, when you know there's that risk. And I stayed there. I tried to keep the conversation going. I tried to be uplifting but not faith or fake or to the point where you know there's that envy of well you sound great and I don't feel good and just you know loving and being present and I recall that conversation often because my family member not too long after that did end up committing suicide and suicide's a tough topic it's not one that's fun to talk about it's not easy for me to talk about And yet it's so prevalent in our culture, especially among young people. My cousin was 33 years old. And as I approach that same age, I just I keep thinking about the reality of suicide in our culture and the reality of despair, especially among young people today, even within the Christian community. And Sister Tina Alfieri is joining me today on Trending. She's a hermited nun, a therapist, and an addiction specialist. Sister Tina, I think that this is one that all of us need to be prepared for in our modern culture, both with family and friends, but maybe even spotting those who we don't know personally, who we might in some way, by God's grace, be an intercessor for them. 
How do you navigate a loved one who is suicidal? Yeah, Timory, this is a very, very sensitive subject and very, um, uh, very devastating for all involved. Um, it's difficult because you feel so entirely helpless. You know, depending on what the scenario is, I'm hearing you share what your scenario was. I'm not sure how many hundreds or even thousands of miles away you were, you know, only connected by a phone. It becomes very, very difficult. But again, whether you're a thousand miles away or whether you're in the same house and someone uh, close to you is very depressed or despairing or hopeless, um, we need to be aware that help is available. Uh, thinking of taking one's own life is a psychiatric emergency. I need to make that very clear for anyone who might be thinking about self-harm, taking their own life, or harming someone else. This is akin to the physical equivalent of a heart attack. You get rushed to the front of the line in the triage at the emergency room if you have a heart attack. It's life-threatening. This is no different. Suicide to the point, uh, I mean, excuse me, despair, hopelessness, depression, uh, helplessness to the point of thinking of harming yourself, killing yourself. This is a psychiatric emergency. This need, You need to be rushed to the front of the triage in an emergency room. Family members need to take this seriously. I don't care how many times somebody has threatened or attempted before. I do not care if you feel like you're being manipulated. Maybe you are. I don't know. That's not for anyone to judge at this point in time. The only thing we can do is try to get help for that person. And help is going to look very different depending on what state you live in, what the laws are. Uh, so I do need to preface that with um, each state is going to have different ways that their mental health uh, communities can act and cannot act, how their law enforcement communities can and cannot act with persons who may be experiencing a psychiatric crisis, such as wanting to take their own life. So I think the most important thing is if the person is close to you, is encourage them, go to the hospital with them, ask if you can take them, drive them to the hospital, explain to them, this is serious. This is like having a heart attack. We need to do something now. Uh, make sure that they're in the uh, environment, that there's no weapons, uh, lots of medications that might be harmful if they take them, um, any ways that they could self-harm uh, with objects in the house or in the room. Just try to get the person to see this as the emergency that it is. People are not crazy. People are desperate. They are despairing. They are without hope. Um, and unfortunately, it is a sad statement on our culture. This is the majority of our culture today. I do think the majority of our culture, uh, with uh, everything that we hear, see, read, politics, inflation, wars, I think most people are kind of running on about a 
<laughs> uh, fuel tank these days, you know, so it doesn't take a whole lot to really push someone over the edge uh, into despair and hopelessness, losing a significant relationship, getting a devastating medical diagnosis, losing a job, and having to support a family, and where is my next meal going to come from? The, the mortgage is due or the rent is due. It doesn't take a whole lot to tip people into the ultimate despair and hopelessness of contemplating suicide. So I think we need to be very merciful and realistic with those who threaten suicide, attempt suicide, and with those who have unfortunately completed suicide. Um, we are not to judge. Uh, we do not know what anyone is going through. I think that if we had to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, we would gladly give them back to their owners. Um, you know, we just cannot make judgments about that. So mm. the most important thing is to try to get the person help. Um, and hopefully and people are willing. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate where you give that comparison because even one of my producers Patrick here commented it's interesting that comparison mm -hmm. he's never really seen the idea of a medical emergency and that you get them to a hospital you get mm -hmm. them that immediate help you help them understand this is an emergency we need to mm -hmm. do something about this exactly. at the same time as not sitting here going okay I checked my mark I got this person my loved one to this place but suicide is an act of despair Yes. And it, it's fueled by a culture that is so prevalent today of loneliness and isolation. And as you mentioned, mental instability triggered by the many and various challenges we see in our mm -hmm. culture today, from mm -hmm. the economy to you name it, sleeplessness, mm -hmm. you name it. And it's a reminder of how important that role of closeness is in relationships. Can you speak, however, to the finding that role of closeness in relationships while also still... Uh, being close to someone who, as you and I have discussed earlier, might have some sort of addiction that is damaging. I, I'm going to link to the episode because it was beautifully put how important those relationships still are where we don't sever people off as Christians. Can you yeah. speak to navigating that type of situation where it's perhaps unhealthy, but we're still called to be present to them in some way? Yeah. So it's very, it is a difficult path to navigate. And again, this is where a very good therapist who is uh, schooled and experienced in addiction and recovery comes into play. Also, those great 12-step uh, uh, groups and organizations such as Al-Anon, Naranon, uh, that help loved ones of addicts and alcoholics that help the family members navigate this is crucial. So we want to help the person find recovery. I'm speaking now specifically about people who are dealing with a addictive disorder. Maybe they're despairing because they can't seem to get sober. They can't get clean. They've tried rehab um, maybe a multiple times and they just feel I'm just, I can't do it. It's, I'm worthless, I'm hopeless, I'm beyond help. It's really important to encourage treatment for that person. It's important for the family members to be in treatment as well because the family members are just often just as traumatized, helpless, hopeless, because we know that 
as much as we might want our loved one to get clean and sober, I can't do it for them. Boy, is that, uh, there's no other feeling of helplessness. I think of parents with a sick child in the hospital with maybe leukemia. It's the same helplessness. I want the best for my child, but I can't do anything to make the leukemia go away. I can try to make sure that they get all the best help they can, but I'm powerless over this leukemia in their body. Addiction is the same way. It's a disease. We have to treat it, and it takes ongoing treatment. And family members are often the ones who are very impacted by the addict uh, because the family members feel helpless and hopeless by association with an addict who is actively using or an addict who is in despair because they have relapsed again for the 12th time, the 13th time. Mm -hmm. And yes. it it's very devastating. I think what's important is to realize that the, uh, the virtue of hope really yes. compels us. Uh, we can always be hopeful and to uh, for family members out there who might be dealing with a loved one who is dealing with an addictive disorder, I strongly encourage them, do anything and everything you can that encourages sobriety and recovery. Yes. Do anything and everything you can that encourages sobriety and recovery. Do nothing that helps the addiction to actually grow. So don't give them money. You know, if you want to pay their rent, go and take the money to the rental office and pay it yourself. Don't give the addict money, right? So, I mean, there are ways that we can be very supportive of people in their attempts at recovery without making ourselves doormats or enabling the addict, but yet also understanding that sometimes no matter how badly I want my loved one to live, <sighs> It's very sad that addiction is a disease and people do die from it, just like cancer, just like diabetes, just like lots of other diseases. For some things, there's no cure. We have remission if people are cooperating with taking their medicine, right? Uh, diabetes can be managed if people are going to take their medicine. Addiction is the same way. You go to therapy, you go to treatment, rehab, you go to 12-step. I could call going to 12-step meetings, taking your medicine as an addict. That's what keeps you clean and sober. So, you know, we have to cooperate. The addict has to cooperate in the process. Mm -hmm. No matter how much the family gets tired and worn out and wrung out. And I hear, I know that as family members, I have them in my office. I have them in my practice. I see them all the time. They are traumatized, worn out, wrung out, exhausted, but they still love their family member. They want them to get clean and sober, but everybody does get tired mm -hmm. and it's very, very difficult, very difficult yeah. to maintain hope. But that is yet what we are called to do and to not give up hope where I don't know who said it, right? But where there's, where there's breath, there's hope, right? Mm -hmm. So as yes. long as people are breathing, there is still hope. And we have to be hopeful um, because people do recover. We do know people recover. There are hundreds of thousands yes. of instances of people who do. And remember, we are called, as you're saying, to hold on to hope and know that God has allowed this person in our lives. But 
God's allowed us, chosen us to be in their lives as well. And that doesn't mean we can place blame or responsibility, but we do have a sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. Go back to the beginning of Genesis in the first death we see where Mm -hmm. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And the Mm -hmm. answer is yes, we are our brother's keeper. Are we responsible for their free will and their choices? No, but are we responsible to love and prevent loneliness and isolation? Are we responsible to respond in the face of emergency and understand that this is a psychiatric Mm -hmm. emergency, as you said? Mm -hmm. And so praying, having been there, I get this, praying before, you know, seeing that yo-yo that's Mm -hmm. so exhausting of a loved one who's addicted or struggling with mental health in this way, but also praying after in when that act of despair does happen, that we believe in God's uh, mercy and God's situational understanding of what's going on and that there is hope. And the catechism of the Catholic Church does point to that. We don't fully understand if a person was in their right state of mind when it Mm -hmm. comes to culpability. So I'll include some of the catechism links on this topic, but I think the resounding I think inspiration from what you say, Sister Teen, is holding on to hope, knowing God has allowed us to be there and still working to the best of our ability as loved ones who who are responsible to be there in that person's life as we're able. Sister Tina, thank you for touching on such a difficult topic, but that's so important to equip us on how to navigate it. If you'd like to find Sister Tina Alfieri, she's doing great work, especially helping Women who have experienced betrayal trauma at bloomforcatholicwomen.com. That's bloomforcatholicwomen.com. We'll be right back here on Trending. So a theme of this week that we'll pick up again on Friday has to do with fertility. Yesterday, we dove into the impact of fertility, the negative impact of surrogacy specifically on women and children. There's so much to unpack there. But today, I want to speak for a moment uh, to having hope in the face of fertility challenges. Now, on Friday, we'll get into some of the more practical elements. Dr. Susan Caldwell is a fertility and infertility specialist. So if you have questions for her, don't hesitate to email or write them and send them in on social media now because we will take them with Dr. Susan Caldwell uh, here on Trending this Friday. She's Excellent. And she practices what's referred to as NAPRO technology that helps honor your faith and your body with treating underlying health concerns without compromising the life of a child or your health as well. So here's what was really on my mind yesterday. Uh, we, As we were talking about surrogacy, yesterday's daily mass readings were so relevant to the struggle of fertility. And if you have heard my story before, you know my journey with polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, Hashimoto's disease, and at one point, nearly 30 food allergies. Now there are just five major ones, but how impactful food has also been on my fertility journey. And I, as I was at Mass yesterday, I just kept thinking about some of my loved ones who I'm praying for. And if you want me to pray for you, I would love to pray for you. If you're working and praying, and maybe you're working with a napper doctor or a naturopath, whatever you're doing to try and conceive a baby, I will pray for you, please. It's a near and dear topic to my heart. But what we were presented with for the Mass readings yesterday include the miraculous. In 
One of my favorite examples of infertility, what's referred to as barrenness in the Old Testament, is 1 Samuel chapter 1, where we read the, the story, the conception, beginning with faith of Hannah, Samuel's mother. And the story, I'd just like to read from it for a moment. We read, after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose, and she then sets out Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorstep of the temple of the Lord. Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will give to thy maidservant a son, I will give to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continues to pray before the Lord, what happens, if you know the story, is Eli the priest observes her muttering, and he thinks she's a crazy lady. And as she's speaking deeply from her heart, begging the Lord to give her the gift of a child after years of barrenness, and saying that if she receives a child, she'll offer that child to the Lord, he thinks she's drunk, and he mocks her, tells her to go away, get out of here, essentially. And she said, no, no, I am a, a, a woman who is sorely troubled. She said, I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I'm poured out my soul before the Lord. She says, do not regard your maidservant as some base woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And so the priest Eli then says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have made to him. And from there, we continue to read the story of the great gift of the child that she conceives and how she praises God in the midst of this and offers her son Samuel back to God and who he serves in the temple and ultimately becomes a great, great priest in the story of salvation history leading up to David, the king. And this story is so relevant to today in this challenge of fertility, infertility, delayed fertility, that all of salvation history is stamped and peppered everywhere with stories of supposed barrenness, someone who's too too old, Sarah and Elizabeth, someone such as Hannah, who's been mocked and ridiculed for her lack of children. I could mention many others in the stories. And what we see in the story is an utter and complete petition and dependence on God for God's will, but for the gift of life from God, along with the intercession of others, people who, for example, Eli didn't initially understand her struggle of infertility. And when she tried to explain a little bit, he goes, okay, the Lord grant your request. And she continues to pray to God that his main servant, calling herself his servant, find favor in the eyes of God. What we see in the story of Hannah is utter and complete humility and dependence on God's providential love and mercy and gifts. May they come or may they not. Now, in the same day, we had yesterday following that reading, the psalm, the responsorial psalm that also comes from First Samuel, and it's the hymn of Hannah where she's exalting the Lord and she's calling God her strength because she's so grateful for all that God has done for her. I hope you'll read it from 1 Samuel chapter 2 starting at verse 1 through 8 and it's very similar to the Magnificat. In fact, some of the words are exactly the same as what Our Lady says when she greets her cousin Elizabeth who was also barren by the way and had a miraculous child in the gospel according to Luke. Now part of what Hannah says upon the gift of her child. She said, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many 
and children is forlorn. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. In other words, this great hymn of Hannah, this great exaltation of gratitude for the gift of her child, this miraculous gift of her child, is a reminder that God is the one who brings life. God is the one who raises up, raises us up in the midst of trying circumstances. Understand, as she says, that the pillars of the very earth, the foundation of the earth is the Lord's, and that on them he has set the world that he's in charge ultimately. And if you tie this into the rest of the mass readings yesterday that touched so deeply on fertility and the miraculous, we read in the gospel according to Mark about Jesus healing the man with the unclean spirit. In other words, there's this resounding hymn of hope and healing in the face of fertility crisis. And so I hope that that is something that it's a message that you can resound in the culture today as our loved ones, because it's so common face the challenge of infertility. I'll have resources here on Friday with a fertility and infertility specialist, Dr. Susan Caldwell. So be sure to send me your questions and also prayer requests for any loved ones you may know who's struggling. And I'll also link to my story and what we did along our fertility journey that we knew many years before I even got married was going to be a challenge, but I really do believe my children are absolute gifts from God by the grace of God. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. And if you want to check out any of those links, head over to relevantradio.com forward slash trending, where you can listen to this episode of Trending and see all of the information in the episode notes or on our wonderful new and improved free Relevant Radio app. We are there. I want to discuss setting simple and achievable monthly goals. This is something that I'm working on this year as my family continues to grow. Maybe you have goals that you want to work on personally, professionally, in your family. But I recently heard about this great theme of focusing on a monthly goal, especially for families, and letting that be your theme. And so it's something I'm working on here with the radio program. My producer Jim's in on it with me. I'm also working on it in my family. For example, our big goal is sleep because with the Christmas and New Year celebrations that occurred, we are just completely out of kilter, especially my kids. And so just getting back in line so that there can be greater peace and joy and just uh, better moods when you sleep better. So that's our big goal. So like the big picture for us is sleep. And so there are a lot of concrete steps for us that need to occur. Maybe for you, it might be timers for being aware of what time it is, actually knowing what time you need to go to bed and need to wake up to get enough sleep, uh, putting your phone on the other side of the house if you need to, so that you don't just roll over, tap snooze, but maybe you have to run across the cold floor, whatever that might be. Uh, that's one example. So focusing on simple and achievable monthly goals. So another one might be maybe your focus instead of a New Year's resolution might be, hey, I want to start exercising this month for 15 minutes a day. How I'm going to do that is I'm going to time block it on my calendar and I'm also going to write down or tell someone and plan out what my exercise will be for the next day. So my husband and I do this the next day we tell each other we tell each other for the next day hey i'm going to work out at this time of day because it helps each other to 
help play defense with the kids who think exercise time is, let me jump on you in this fun equipment you're using, or let me jump on you because you're on the floor and you look so accessible. And so that's one part of it. But also for us, it's a matter of planning what we're going to do so that we can accomplish it. So maybe for me, it's one day doing the TRX. Another, it might be doing Pilates. Another is, okay, I'm getting a walk-in and I'm also doing something else. Really planning and knowing what that is. So those are concrete examples in making sure it's time blocked on your calendar. I think that's so key. And for me, it's a little more general because I kind of have pockets of time in the day that float throughout the day. So this pocket is, you know, maybe food and hanging out and playing with the kids. This pocket is, this one's for sure meant napping. That one's maybe napping. And if both are napping, that's when I'm getting my work done. So knowing when that pocket is, that's most reasonable for me to try and work out around the kids, which seems to get harder and harder when kids come. It's why the dad bod, and I guess there's no term for mom bod that occurs. Another one that might be one of your goals that I know is not what I'm overly focusing on next month, but might be my monthly goal next month, although I do need to work on reining it in, is being better at meal prepping, saving money, saving time, eating better foods, losing weight. Meal prepping's at the core, so maybe that's your goal for the month. Uh, Maybe you figure out a time to meal prep once or twice a week. My mother-in-law and I were just talking about this. She says, okay, this is what you do. You have your husband take your kids for a walk while you do the meal prepping. She was very excited to talk about meal prepping. She's really good about being very ahead when it comes to food. I wish I was as ahead as that. It can be difficult to make sure. In, In our house with all the food allergies and dietary issues, we have to cook a lot of our own food. So Although meal prepping isn't my goal with this whole idea of setting simple and achievable monthly goals, maybe it's yours and maybe it's one for next month for you. So those are some ideas. I'd love to hear from you what simple and achievable monthly goals you're implementing in your life and maybe some of the steps you're taking to get there. But keeping the goal simple, sleep, organization, exercise, whatever that might be. Join me tomorrow here on Trending. We're diving into Eucharistic miracles with Bishop Cousins, along with looking at some psychological research on the mental health health of people who go to church more frequently and how the Eucharist is at the center of better mental health. Coming up next is a family rosary across America.